In this week's edition of Farmers Inside Track, we get up close and personal with Trinisani Kwabe, a young agricultural researcher and soya bean farmer who is passionate about indigenous crops. And in our entrepreneurship slot, we explore the possibility of short-time work as opposed to retrenchment in this difficult economic climate. We chat to Yanni de Villiers, AgriSA's policy head for labor and development. We are inspired by farmer Kahalelo Matlala, who is raising an army of she-bosses in the Northern Cape. And this week we're reading For the Love of the Land, a brand new book saluting the unsung heroes of agriculture. This is Farmers Inside Track, supported by Food from Zanzi. Inspiration for your business and life. From South Africa's farmers and agripreneurs. Hey South Africa, welcome to episode 26 of Food for Mzanzi's weekly podcast called Farmers Inside Track. My name is Dawn Numdu and I'm the editor of South Africa's leading agricultural news and lifestyle publication. And joining me for the very first time as co-host of this week's episode is journalist Duncan Masiwa. Hey Dawn, <laughs> thank you. Listen, I feel honored being in the hot seat with you today. But but first up, I'd like to thank all the Farmers Inside Track podcast listeners from all over the world. We've been rocking the charts on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. So thank you everyone for your great support. Now on to today's very first guest, Tunisani Kabe, a 26-year-old agricultural researcher and soya bean farmer. Duncan kicked off this interview by understanding his passion for indigenous food systems, which has led to a bright career for Tunisani. Tunisani, you're an agricultural researcher with a special focus on indigenous food systems. Now, you recently started a company called the Renaissance of Indigenous Agriculture. Tell us a bit about that and then also what your focus is there. So, in 2019, I started a company called the Renaissance of Indigenous Agriculture. Renaissance of Indigenous Agriculture, if you like, which is in line with my research focus. And in a nutshell, what the company seeks to achieve is basically to raise awareness about the importance of indigenous foods. These are foods that have been part of our forefathers' livelihood and today they're on a major decline. So I really felt it was important that I join a few that had already started championing these foods. And I strongly believe that more than anything, Duncan, what we really need is to one, promote and protect our indigenous foods. And two, we need to ensure that indigenous species are well managed and also form part of our farming systems. Tanisani, we of course know that for years, perhaps even till this day, that indigenous foods have always been perceived as food for poor people or associated with those of a low socioeconomic status. Why do you think that is? And perhaps in your opinion, do you think that the importance of these neglected foods have increased in South Africa? Well, with regards to the importance of these neglected indigenous foods, Duncan, I think they've always been important, 
they are as much important today as they were in the 1700s. Problem is, people are just not aware about them because of this decline that we speak of. And the problem for me starts when professional workers go to communities, teach people about nutrition and agriculture, telling them about the importance of consuming spinach, for example, outlining all the benefits of spinach, of cabbage, of carrots, and so on and so forth, leaving out indigenous foods that are actually meant to be part of the discourse. And really, I think those are the platforms that people should be using to champion indigenous foods, but it is not happening. Nothing saddens me more than the general perception that indigenous foods are for the poor. And this association of them with people of a low socioeconomic status is just heartbreaking. That is really one of the misconceptions that has to come to an end. It has to come to an end, Duncan. And I really appreciate people like Chef Numbumelelo who have taken the initiative to champion these indigenous foods. Because if you think about it really, just like your, your normal cash crops or whatever foods that you find in the market, indigenous foods are just as important and they really don't need to be stigmatized because stigma is actually one of the reasons why we are witnessing a decline in these indigenous flora, indigenous species. And it's so unfortunate that the few remaining edible indigenous plants, crops, foods, whatever, they are being used up without any form of reproduction. And this is mostly observed in indigenous foods which grow widely, such as your blackjack, your amaranthus, and the African wormwood, which is also known as umflonyane, <laughs> and is funny enough gaining popularity these days for its perceived cure for COVID-19. I have my views on that, but I don't think this is the platform. Otherwise, this is a conversation that you and I have to have some other day. Denisani, you of course grew up with your grandparents in KZN. And those who have actually read your story featured on Food from Zanzi would know that you have quite a close relationship with indigenous foods and vegetation. Because these were the kinds of foods that you and your family consumed on a daily basis. What are some of that fond memories that you have consuming these vegetables with your family? I'd say that I'm privileged. And I say this because from where I come, Duncan, my grandparents and other members of the community actually valued indigenous foods and they still continue to value these. They form a great part of our livelihood. But it's such a pity that People are now shifting from their indigenous ways of doing things, and in particular, shifting away from consuming and producing indigenous foods, which have been proven numerous times that they are highly nutritious in comparison to their exotic counterparts. And again, this is one of the areas where I can sadly say that the Western influence has caused a lot of damage on. But I'm still of the assertion that not all is lost, at least not yet things can still be corrected. And seeing that part of the everyday discourse revolves around decolonization, why not just start by raising the awareness about indigenous foods and find means of mainstreaming them? I think that would be a great start. I'm sure you also feel the same, don't you think? Lenisana, I'd like to shift to the socioeconomic impact of indigenous vegetation. What exactly are they? And perhaps what don't we know? Well, Duncan, 
There's actually no single definition for indigenous foods. They are classified differently by different people. But just to give you a bit of an idea, it, it's foods that are of origin in a particular area or region. And in my case, it is foods that are indigenous to Africa, or rather have been indigenized to Africa. And by indigenized foods, I'm referring to those foods that have adopted our traditional farming systems, like a sweet potato, for example. And these indigenous foods that we speak of play a very crucial role to the livelihoods of people, both socially and economically. And to put it lightly, indigenous foods are part of our identity, especially us Africans. They form a great part of our identity. And when we perform rituals, and have ceremonies and other traditional events, indigenous foods form part of that. And for some people, they even go as far as using these foods to connect with their ancestors. And when there's no food at home, or when there's more meat than vegetables, I'm sure you would also agree with me when I say wild leafy vegetables can be picked and used as either relish or a side dish for that matter. Just a bit, a bit of uh, diversity to the plate. And amaranthus is a very great example for this because people just use it as either relish or they use it as a side dish and it's very delicious. <laughs> also, well, for some people, indigenous vegetables, especially the cultivated vegetables, offer a source of income in the household. They play a very significant role when it comes to income generation, more especially in rural areas where people are still producing this and selling on the streets as vendors. And with regards to other socioeconomic factors, well, there's actually many other socioeconomic benefits, if I may just put it like that. There's many socioeconomic benefits which are brought about by these indigenous foods. But what is important, Duncan, really, is that society should embrace and appreciate our African foods and should start learning about their socioeconomic value. They should know their socioeconomic benefits. And this includes the likes of their nutritional and medicinal values as well. Now, everyone here at Farmers Inside Track, we enjoy a good laugh. So for my next question, I'm going to ask you something completely out of context. So here we go. Would you rather be covered in fur or covered in scales? <laughs> Quick questions. Wow, interesting. I was so not expecting that. Would I rather be covered in fur or scales? Hmm, that's a very interesting one. I think I'm going to go for scales. Reason being that I've never seen any scales floating voluntarily on water. So I wouldn't want to frustrate people with fur, especially when it starts falling off. If you are domesticating pets uh, such as dogs and cats, you would know this. But no offense to anyone who's keeping this. I love them very much so. Next question. If you could make a stupid rule for one day and everyone had to follow it, what would it be? I guess really for me, it would have to be prohibiting the use of digital devices simply because the very same devices that are meant to connect us have actually made us lose connection with those who are close to us. I would be sitting in the sitting room with someone only to find that there is no decent conversation taking place simply because we are glued on our cell phones. Why is that? Let's just prohibit the use of digital devices just for 24 hours. <laughs> 
Thanks so much for joining us. Klinisani Klabe, a KwaZulu-Natal-based agricultural researcher and soybean farmer. Stay tuned because we're talking retrenchments versus short-time work directly after this. Life in South Africa can be a lot. I mean, scroll through Twitter for a minute and tell me I'm wrong. Thank God for South Africans though, right? We're inspiring and even on the bad days, we fight back with a smile. That's why I love Food for Mzanzi so much. They're not ashamed to celebrate the ordinary unsung heroes who work every day to put food on our nation's tables. Go to foodformzanzi.co.za and never miss an inspiring story. The COVID-19 pandemic has put millions of South Africans' jobs on the line while unions and business owners scramble to try and save employees' jobs. Despite government assistance, many farmers, agripreneurs and other businesses still struggle to survive. Many are even forced to retrench workers. We're now joined by Yanni de Villiers, AgriSA's policy head for labour and development. Yanni, let's kick off by you telling us what is short-time work exactly? Short-time work is reduced working hours that are implemented to reduce an employer's salary and or wage bill. It means that employees work less and therefore earn less. It is important to know that the arrangement of short-time is governed by some bargaining councils, but where an employer falls outside the scope of a bargaining council, such arrangement needs to be by agreement between an employer and an employee. How is short-time work distributed amongst employees? This will depend on the specific workplace and that's why agreement is so, so important. Short-time is supposed to provide relief, not cripple the employer's operations. Skills retention is incredibly important and this needs to be at the top of the employer's mind when making short-time working arrangements. Can short-time work be unilaterally imposed on employees? No, it cannot. Short-time implies a deviation from an employee's contract of employment, and a contract of employment cannot be changed unless it is done by agreement between the employer and the employee. What happens if an employee refuses to agree to short-time work? The alternative is that the employer embarks on a retrenchment process in terms of Section 189 of the Labor Relations Act. The employers who implement short time are already under financial pressure, otherwise they would not have instituted short time in the first place. Their only other alternative would be retrenchments. Is short time work as an alternative to retrenchment a better option, especially in light of the COVID-19 pandemic? And what are the options? Due to the current economic situation, it can certainly be argued that retaining one's job is the first prize, even if working time is reduced. Nothing prevents an employer and an employee from agreeing that the employee may take on outside work for the duration of the short-time arrangements under agreed-upon parameters. Furthermore, COVID-19 relief measures at the UIF provide that employees may claim UIF, the TERS benefit specifically, for income lost due to short time. Thanks for taking us through the legalities of both retrenchment and short time work. Yanni de Villiers is Angry Essay's policy head for labour and development.
We hope you're still enjoying this week's Farmers Inside Track podcast because one of the trending stories on Food for Mzanzi is about Kahalelo Matlala, who is inspiring millennials and raising up an army of she-bosses in the Northern Cape. My name is Kahalelo Priscilla Matlala. I am the owner of Mlelo's Poultry Farm. I would just like to say a shout out to Food from Zanzi for a great article they did about me. That article has gotten a huge, huge, huge positive response. This has taught me that, you know what, people now more than ever interested or into or loving agriculture more than ever. I would just like to say, you know what, I think the purpose of that article was just to say to people, you know what, you don't have to be a big farmer. You just have to have two chickens in the back of your yard, take care of them, and your family will thank you later. In this huge, huge stats of unemployment that we have, agriculture is our answer. Guys, agriculture is our answer. Thank you so much, Food from Zanzi. You have done a great job. For more daily inspirational stories about farmers and agriculturalists who go above and beyond to feed South Africa, Stay tuned to www.foodformzanzi.co.za or simply follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Wow, Mom, what did you put on this chicken? Well, I was trying a new recipe using grain-filled chickens. Oh, Mom, this is amazing. You can't go wrong with 100% South African farm-quality chicken. With a range of fresh, frozen and marinated products, make grain-filled chickens your number one choice. Grain-filled chickens from the farms of the Free State. Need we say more? If you want quality, ask for grain-filled chickens at a leading store. Grainfield Chickens. Bring home the taste. Visit grainfieldchickens.co.za We've just about reached the end of this week's episode of the Farmers Inside Track podcast. But first, our book of the week, Our Farmers Have Selected for the Love of the Land, a much-talked-about book by Food for Mzanzi co-founders Ivor Price and Quibus Lawrence. Ivor joined 702's Bruce Whitfield in studio, and this time around, Bruce got to ask all the questions. So I grew up on a farm, and it was natural to me. I mean, you grow up on a farm, and it's dry and brittle, and August is terrible, and the dust, and it's just, everything is terrible. Then you get some spring rain, and then you plow, and then it's wonderful, and then you plant, and the smell of clay and rain and dust is beautiful. And you go through, you know, you hope like hell that through summer you don't get hail to destroy your crops. You hope that you don't get too many pests that eat your crops. And then you look forward to the first winter frost to kill off the capillaries within the maize plants to allow the cobs to dry. And then you get to an ideal weight. You don't want them to be too dry because then the grains are light and you get less money. You don't want them to be too wet because then the silos force you to dry the mealies and then you have to wait for your money. And then the harvesting happens and then you do it all over again and you it's just like repeat 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 and it's only as you get older do you appreciate the extraordinary faith of farmers to like and they lick a finger stick it in the air and say okay today's the day to plant to put millions of rand into the ground in the faith 
that it's going to rain and conditions are going to be ideal and they will at least cover their costs year in and year out and hopefully from time to time make a profit. Now, Ivor Price is a household name. He famously quit the SABC in 2016 saying that Claudi Motsuaneng was a his poisonous tentacles that infected the entire public broadcaster. So that's uh, he gets a point for that. He's also an award-winning broadcaster. He's the co-author of a brand new book with Corpus uh, Lawrence For the Love of the Land, Being a Farmer in South Africa Today. Why do you embark on a pro-farmer book? That's not very pro-farmer. So Quibis, who's the co-author, had a similar reaction, such as the one you almost nostalgically described now. Just about burst into tears, thinking about the labor of love that our farmers are committing every single day. I grew up in a city, Cape Town, in the northern suburbs, and quite frankly, my grandfather used to say, the only good farmer is a dead farmer. <laughs> so you've got to see that in the context of the apartheid yeah, days. He was a teacher, a minister, and somehow, like most South Africans still today, we confused farming with land reform and all sorts of issues. Then after the SABC, I had about a year that I was dead. I just about didn't do any work. And then out of the blue came a call to do a television show focusing on farmers. So I spent a year traveling more than 100,000 kilometers for four seasons of the show. And it changed my perspectives. And I wish my grandfather was still around so I could tell him, listen, all the stuff you told me as a kid was wrong. Was it wrong or has farming changed? With respect to your grandfather's memory, was he talking about farmers or was he talking about Buddha or was he talking about Afrikaners? Well, I mean, again, we, when we grow up as kids and our grandfathers or grandmothers tell us stories, whether it be stories of concentration camps or, or farmers, they have a particular lens, don't they? <laughs> they do. And it's only as we become older that we realize that some of the stories we've been told are nonsense. Mm. But to be honest, I've been a journo for 20 years. I did not even know that black people could farm like most South Africans. I didn't even know that females could farm. Let's go back to square one. Who is the South African farmer? Because traditionally, he wears a two-tone shirt that he buys from the co-op, and he's got boots on, and he's got long socks, and he has a comb in his sock. That's a, a vision of a South African farmer, but it's actually couldn't be further from the truth in terms of the average. Exactly. So when you close your eyes and you think about the typical South African farmer today, it's probably a white Afrikaans male, many of them dressed in two tones, and I understand it's for practical reasons. But most of the investment currently by government and also agricultural organizations are into black females. So I'll put my money on it. In 10 years from now, the average person producing food for this country will probably be a black female. But it, it's so diverse in this country. And I think that is what, for the love of the land, this labor of love, our book proves from a Muslim farmer on the Cape Flats, as traditional as you can imagine. I did not even know that we had farms on the Cape Flats. I'm, the Philippi farmlands. Yes, exactly. Well, yeah. I'm from the northern suburbs, 20 minutes away from there. <laughs> but I did not know that most of the eggs in the Western Cape comes from Wadia Japi's farm. So if we were Tikana, if you hear that name, you'll probably think, okay, black boy from the Eastern Cape, which he is, but he's an Afrikaans boy. So it's not so easy these days to, to box people. So many people feel vulnerable as a result of broken promises of land reform. So many people have been sold down the river with land reform, have been handed land with no capital, no skills, and no, no ability to actually execute, and have been badly let down by a system. And then you've got people who've got legitimate land claims who are sitting waiting for generations, and people are dying before the land claims can be heard, and that's deeply unfair as well. And now you've got a system 
system whereby in politics it's like, well, throw all white farmers off the land. <laughs> the state should own the land and people can rent it back. And suddenly you've got people like Jakubus Kluti, who is from a place called Steinkopf in the Northern Cape. And these are Nama people. These are indigenous people who've gone into formal agriculture over the last 200 years who are feeling just as vulnerable as a farmer from Kuransatobotaville might be feeling. And this couple you're referring to from Stinkonkoria in the Northern Cape, they're the typical example of farmers who have been led down by government, but who've somehow managed to survive against all odds. Quibus and I have started calling them the Middletons. There's a big focus in South Africa on the white commercial farmers, mostly white on the one hand, and the almost subsistence farmers on the other hand. But everybody forgets about the exciting middle part, the Middletons. They've been weaning themselves off government support. they cut full of broken promises. And somehow they're surviving, and some of them even flourishing, without as much as one cent from government coming coming their way. I think our agricultural organizations have been great in that respect. They're my everyday heroes because they're really committing to farmers above and beyond we ever see in this country. I mean, they're doing the job that our government is supposed to do, supporting all these farmers. I, I, I loved going to Nampo a couple of years ago now yeah. and, and chairing a panel discussion and having an audience uh, that 30 years before would have been inconceivable of black farmers and white farmers sitting together with exactly the same issue because farming is about the issues. People love the land and they want to till the land and they want to harvest the crops, but the frustrations are all the same. The circumstances in which they're farming are all the same. The labor issues are the same. The cost issues are the same. The drought issues are the same. It was just such a wonderful thing. So everybody's struggling together, Yeah, <laughs> which is kind of a weird perspective, I suppose. We want everybody succeeding together, but farming is not easy. It's not easy. It's a labor of love. Um, as you say, you literally plant your money in the ground and only the next couple of generations will probably see a profit from that. But the exciting thing for me is similar to what our Springboks have proven here um, during the World Cup. People are no longer waiting on government aid eh, to do their thing. And our farmers are doing that every single day of their lives without, in many cases, government support. And they committed. They've been committed for hundreds of years. The couple you referred to earlier, Machrita and, and Jakob Kluter from the Northern Cape, they've been doing it for four decades. Another story in this book is Nokomile Manjusa. She's an Eastern Cape. We call it tobacco angel. A tobacco farmer, she's been um, doing it for about 40 years. She makes about 700 bucks every quarter. She's been working this land tirelessly. Nobody knows about her. And somehow that's been enough to put her kids through varsity. One of them's even studying in Canada at the moment. I don't know how she did. Um, nor do I. Maybe it's not tobacco. Anyway, um, Wandile <laughs> Setlob. It's a joke. It's a joke. Don't sue. And I love the fact that you, you give the last word to Wandile Setlobo, who is an extraordinary South African, who is being such a positive force for good in maintaining, I think, much of the confidence that exists in farming. Because for many people, They'd be petrified to put the seeds in the land this year, not only because of weather circumstances and global warming, but just like, will I be harvesting my crops next year? I think the heat has gone out of the land debate. There is good common sense coming yeah. through. Halema Watlante's proposals have come through. Parliament is going through a process now because there has to be sensible resolution to restitution, to making things right in a way that we don't have you know, South Africa, which is heavily dependent on commercial agriculture, starving. And on the other hand, ordinary South Africans such as ourselves have to show greater respect for our farmers. It's become so easy to insult farmers, and our politicians have made that very easy. But every time we order a steak, medium rare, we've got a farmer to thank. 
If you drink a beer, a farmer planted those seeds and it eventually ended up on your table as a beer or gin. I mean, gin has been fashionable with farmers long before it's been a trend in Cape Town. You know what I mean? So we just want people to realize that our farmers are important. Yeah, it's they, not they, easy. They're important. They're diverse. They work blimmin' hard. Yeah. They, they deserve security of tenure yeah. because everything you consume relies on them. And, and be nice to taxpayers as well. Yeah, exactly. Pay, pay tax. Yeah. Maybe that's the next book. Listen, thank you for coming in. <laughs> It's a, it really is a lovely book, and it is a heartfelt book, and it's got lots and lots of different stories. And, I mean, it's a really good stocking filler for people who are worried about the future. And it's like, hold on a second, there's such a calm logic underlying the stories that come through there. Ivor Price and Quibus Lawrence wrote this book. We've been talking to Ivor Price this evening for the love of the land. That was 702 and Cape Talk Radio presenter Bruce Whitfield chatting to Ivor Price about the For the Love of the Land book. And that brings us to the end of this week's Farmers Inside Track podcasts. Dawn, I know that we South Africans, we, we love our curves, but there's a big curve that we definitely need to flatten out. Yes, Duncan, the coronavirus spreads from person to person like wildfire, causing the deadly COVID-19 disease. If too many people get sick at the same time, our health system won't be able to treat everybody. If we can limit the number of people getting sick at the same time, we can flatten the curb and help the health system to cope. The best thing you can do to help right now is to stay home. Stay safe by following the health guidelines and stay sane with Food Form Zanzi by spreading facts, not fiction. From me, Dawn Numdu. And me, Duncan Masua. And the rest of the Food Form Zanzi team have a great week. Ciao. You've been listening to the Farmers Inside Track podcast, supported by Food Form Zanzi. For more information, find us on www.farmersinsidetrack.co.za.